All right, we're in the middle of our series on 1 Corinthians chapter 15, in which Paul lays out for us the nuts and bolts of the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we're looking at a few different aspects of this gospel. The first week we talked about how the gospel is personal, about how this personal salvation is made available to each and every one of us individually. Last week, we talked about how this gospel means that we have, have victory over death, that Jesus Christ has, has accomplished this resurrection victory over death and has offered this victory to you and me too. So we'll see what, what God has to say to us this week through his word and how, what we believe about the gospel. We're in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're starting at verse 27. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. Jesus' feet, this is. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that this does not include the one who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to the one who put all things in subjection under him, so that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? And why are we putting ourselves in danger every hour? I die every day. That is certain, brothers and sisters. Is my boasting of you a boast that I make in Christ Jesus our Lord? If with merely human hopes I fought with wild animals at Ephesus, what would I have gained by it? If the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Come to a sober mind and sin no more. For some people have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God pretty wild little section here. In fact, there are a number of crazy or confusing concepts in this one short passage. There are three things that made me say, hold up, what are you trying to say here, Paul? First of all, let's, let's start with this whole idea of baptizing folks on behalf of the dead, right? <laughs> That's something he alludes to here. He, in verse 29, what will those people do who receive baptism on behalf of the dead? I've never baptized someone on the behalf of the dead, and I've never heard of it happening in the church. And in fact, this whole concept seems pretty wildly inconsistent with everything else Paul teaches in any of his other letters. And as far as we can tell, he never practiced it himself. So why is he bringing it up here? Why is he even saying this? Is this something we ought to do? Should we start post-mortem baptizing people who are already dead? It just seems weird. I don't think that this is an endorsement of this practice. Evidently, this is something that people in Corinth were already doing. They wanted their dead loved ones to be able to go to heaven and so they would receive a baptism on their behalf. And so I don't think Paul is necessarily endorsing this practice, but he's pointing out the logical inconsistency. He's saying, 
if you don't believe in the resurrection, then why does it matter if you're getting baptized on behalf of the dead? He's showing them this, this inconsistency in their own thinking. If you're practicing this thing, then you're already halfway to believing in the resurrection. So evidently there are some people in Corinth that are practicing baptism on the behalf of the dead, but who also don't believe in the resurrection. And Paul is just pointing out how crazy and inconsistent that is. So it's a way of him continuing to hammer home this idea of the resurrection. The second thing that makes me stop in my tracks here and, and, and question what Paul is saying is this quote that, that comes from, as far as we can tell, it comes from a Greek poet named Menander. And he quotes it here toward the end. He says, Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Now, i got to tell you, if there's one sentence that I could scrub from all of Scripture, it would probably be, bad company ruins good morals. Because any time growing up, my mom did not like someone I was hanging out with, she'd trot this verse out to me. You know, bad company ruins good morals. Shouldn't be hanging out with that guy. And you know what? She was usually right. More often than not, she was right about the folks that I was hanging out with and the folks that I was, I was associating myself with, and they probably did give me a bad company that ruined my good morals. But I'll tell you, sometimes I was the bad company that ruined someone else's good morals too. So my mom didn't quite understand that. But it makes me wonder, didn't Jesus Christ eat with sinners? Wasn't Jesus criticized for hanging out with the wrong crowd of people? He was. So why does Jesus get to hang out with sinners, but for me, bad company ruins good morals? It's kind of hard to live a bad company corrupts moral, good morals kind of life and also have any kind of impact on the world. Because when you tell yourself, oh, bad company corrupts good morals, that, that leads to kind of this Christian bubble that you never get outside of and you never experience what the life is like in the real world. And so it makes me wonder, would Jesus, would Jesus have said bad company corrupts good morals? Would Jesus have agreed with Paul here? I don't know. And then the third thing that Paul says that, that just makes me scratch my head is here at the end, that very last verse, verse 34, he said, come to a sober right mind and sin no more. I say this to your shame. He's trying to shame these people and tell them just, okay, guys, just stop sinning. Knock it off. It's like, okay, Paul, like if I could have stopped sinning, I probably would have done it by now. Right? If I could just decide to stop sinning, I'm, I probably would do that, but there's just something inside me that keeps going to that sin well, right? Telling people to stop sinning is a little bit like when early on in our marriage, boneheaded me would say, hey, Sarah Beth, stop being so emotional. Here's a tip for all you young folks. That doesn't work. That backfires. You cannot tell your wife to stop being so emotional. 
that produces the opposite results. Or it's like trying to tell an addict, well, have you ever just tried not doing drugs? Like, that doesn't work. You can't just, like, if they could have stopped, they would have stopped. And I, that's how I feel about Paul. It's like, okay, Paul, you can shame me all you want. You could tell me sin no more, but, like, I'm kind of trying already. And if I could have stopped sinning, you telling me, hey, knock it off, isn't really going to help very much just feels like Paul's out of touch here. It, he's so worried about making his, this point about his resurrection that he's not connecting with the real lives and the real experiences of people in the real world. It feels like he's getting so into the weeds theologically that he's forgetting what it's like to try to follow Christ and live a faithful life in the world. Now that's how it feels to me reading this when he says, hey, just stop sinning, okay? But I have a theory. I have a theory and, and a way to read this scripture that, that changes it, that kind of flips it on its head. I think this passage makes so much more sense when we realize the specific attitude that Paul was combating in Corinth. And in fact, it's, a, it's an attitude that remains with us to this day. In fact, there's a word for it. And if you're not hip with the lingo of the kids, you might not have heard this before. But it's something, and actually, I don't think kids say it anymore. It's something that kids were saying like 10 or 15 years ago. But there was something that, especially when I was doing youth ministry, if a kid was about to do something particularly stupid or dangerous, before they would do it, they would always say, YOLO, and then they would go and do their stupid, dangerous thing. YOLO is the attitude that Paul is combating here in Corinth. Now, if you're not hip to the lingo, YOLO stands for you only live once. Right? And so the idea is that you only get this one life. You only get to live once, and so you'd better cram as much excitement and experience and good things in it to you can, as you can, even if you have to experience negative consequences. You only live once, so you might as well try it, right? I'm going to do this crazy skateboard trick, and even if I break my leg, at least YOLO, at least I, I could say that I did it. I only live once, so I might as well try it this once. And the way that the Corinthians were expressing YOLO in their day is they were saying, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. That's what that means. It's, we're just going to cram as much food as we can in, we're going to get as much drink as we can in, and even if it gives me a stomach ache or a headache later, YOLO, because tomorrow we die. So <laughs> we only have this one life to live, and so I might as well make it pleasurable as I can. I might as well make it as interesting as I can because then I'm going to die and I won't be able to have any more experiences. And you know what? If you don't believe in a resurrection, then there's some wisdom in that, right? You do only live this one time. You might as well make it interesting. But what Paul's saying to the Corinthians is that, what if that's not true? 
what if you don't only live once? What if you live twice? What if you have this life on earth and then there's a life after that? What if there's a resurrection where we get to spend eternity with God? And then the things that we do today actually matter in eternity. What if what we do with our bodies and our actions here and now actually contribute to something eternal? Well, then that, that changes how I think about the way I live my life. I'm not trying to cram as much good experiences in as I can because I'll have an eternity for that. What I can do now is live to, to store up my treasures in heaven, like Jesus said. And when we begin to take that kind of eternal perspective on life, we start to see exactly how big of a deal sin really is. Right? Because if the wages of sin is death, and Jesus came to oppose and to defeat death and bring us resurrection life, then we can either spend our lives here on this earth right now contributing to the forces of death in our world, contributing to sin, which leads to death, or we can begin to contribute to God's gospel project of bringing about life. Sin is death. Holiness is life. Which brings us to Paul's admonition. Please knock it off with the sin. You see, I don't believe that Paul would have told the Corinthians to stop sinning if he believed that it was impossible to do. I believe that it's difficult, right? But John Wesley certainly believed that, that a holy life was possible. He called it entire sanctification. In another sermon, he called it Christian perfection. Now, when he says Christian perfection, he doesn't mean that you're perfect and you never make a mistake. But what he believed was it, that it was possible that Christians could get to a point where they were so enamored with Jesus that they no longer had a desire for sin, that they no longer committed intentional, conscious sin. Now, they might sin by mistake. They might hurt someone without realizing it. But this idea of Christian perfection means that God is working to sanctify us the longer we are in relationship with Him so that one day we can get to a place where we are about that resurrection life here and now because we are so enamored with Jesus that sin seems gross. And we do this in anticipation of a day when we will be resurrected and perfected and then on that day, in the resurrection, then we really will be perfected and we won't make those kinds of mistakes. It's kind of like, okay, I remember when I got into college, I was so excited about it. I got into Georgia Tech 
And you know, the first thing I did was I ran out and I bought a Georgia Tech hat and a Georgia Tech shirt. Because I knew that one day I was going to be on campus with a bunch of other students that are wearing this gear, and I was going to go to that football game. And I did not want to be stuck at that Tech football game without that shirt and without that hat to root on my team. I was so excited about this future belonging in this place that I started to put on the attire of that place, even when I wasn't there yet, even though I had a whole summer to go before I would actually be on campus. I could have gone to the campus store once I got there and bought a shirt and hat. I could have waited for then, but, but I didn't want to because I was so excited. And it's not that the gear got me into college, right? The gear didn't, didn't get me in, but, but I wanted to start to look like someone that belonged at Tech, even when I was in high school, the summer before I got there. And that's kind of what holiness is like for us. One day, there will be a new heaven and a new earth, and we will be perfected. But we don't have to wait until that day to be holy. We can look forward to that day and work on, on holiness and, and, and fall more and more in love with God every day so that we can look today closer to what we will look like then. Now, it's not that that gets us into heaven. Our efforts and our, and our you know, we, we don't have to be perfect to get into heaven, but we want to be working to look like we belong there once we do get there, right? Because the fact is, Paul didn't just set us free, or Paul, Paul didn't just tell us not to sin. He, said, he, he showed us that we have already been set free from sin. Last week, we talked about how Jesus brings us freedom from death, which is the consequences of sin. He's bringing us freedom from the symptoms. Then wouldn't he bring us freedom from the underlying disease too? But the fact is, we just can't pursue holiness if we're still saying YOLO. We just can't, it doesn't, our brains don't work that way. We can't pursue holiness if we're focused on the short term. It's too tempting for us to take the easy way out. It's too tempting for us to make ourselves comfortable here and now if we're just focused on the short term. And when we surround ourselves with people who are also focused on that short-term YOLO outlook, it's hard to keep that internal perspective in mind when we're making decisions. And I believe that that is why Paul reminds us about bad company. It's not that we can't hang out with sinners, but we cannot allow ourselves to be, to be influenced by a YOLO mentality, which might creep into our minds and affect our decisions. The fact is, Jesus set us free from sin. He forgave us for sin, and he set us free from sin. 
He set us free from sin when he died on the cross, and he gave us power over sin when he rose from the dead, and he gave us the Holy Spirit to guide us and empower us on our day-to-day decisions so that we could be free from sin. And he wants us to live into that freedom. So often I make excuses. So often I act like I can't help it. Like, I'm, like I just have to sin for some reason. But it's not true. If Jesus has set us free, then we are free indeed. That's what the scripture says. And the times when I start to make excuses are the times when I don't look at the big eternal picture. When I'm just looking at what's in front of me. The gospel truth means that we have freedom from sin. The gospel is not just a fire escape from hell when we die, but it's a freedom from sin here and now today. And we can choose to live into that freedom or not, but Jesus has set us free. We don't have to live in sin anymore. We don't have to be a slave to it anymore. We don't have to make excuses anymore. Do you want to live free from sin today? I sure do. Is there a sin that's been persistently haunting you? Is there something that you've been struggling with over and over? And if so, y'all, today is the day to embrace the good news that you don't have to do that. It's the day to live into that freedom. It's the day to overcome and to accept that Jesus, through the power of his death and resurrection, has a a life for you that's free from sin. The good news of the gospel is that the gospel is for you. The good news of the gospel is that it means victory over death. And the good news of the gospel is that it also means freedom from sin. Let's make it a point to pursue holiness together. During our last song, if if you feel like God is compelling you, pulling you toward holiness, if there's a a sin that you want to lay down at the altar and claim victory and freedom over, I want to invite you to do that at our altar this morning. Our closing song is, It is well with my soul. Let's stand and let's sing. After I pray, I forgot to pray. Didn't give Linda time. Let's pray. Jesus, you've given us freedom. You've given us liberty. Sin weighed us down. Sin drug us down. But you have cut those chains. You've cut those ties and you've made us free. So Jesus, I pray that you will give us the courage to live into that freedom. Help us to lay it down, to give it up, and to forsake that old life for a new life in you. Help us to claim this freedom over sin today. In your name I pray, amen. Receive this as our benediction, what we just sang. My sin, oh the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole, 
is nailed to the cross, and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord, O my soul. Amen.